When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? Bone to His Bone by E.G. Swain. William Whitehead, fellow of Emmanuel College in the University of Cambridge, became vicar of Stoneground in the year 1731. The annals of his incumbency were doubtless short and simple. Uh, they have not survived. In his day were no newspapers to collect gossip, no parish magazines to record the simple events of parochial life. One event, however, of greater moment then than now, is recorded in two places, Vicar Whitehead failed in health after twenty-three years of work and journeyed to Bath in what his monument calls the vain hope of being restored. The duration of his visit is unknown. It is reasonable to suppose that he made his journey in the summer. It's certain that by the month of November his physician told him to lay aside all hope of recovery. Then it was that the thoughts of the patient turned to the comfortable, straggling vicarage he had left at stone ground, in which he had hoped to end his days. He prayed that his successor might be as happy there as he had been himself. Setting his affairs in order, as became one who had but a short time to live, he executed a will, bequeathing to the vicars of Stoneground for ever the close of ground he had recently purchased because it lay next to the vicarage garden, and, by a codicil, he added to the bequest his library of books. Within a few days, William Whitehead was gathered to his father's. A mural tablet in the north aisle of the church records, in Latin, his services and his bequests, his two marriages and his fruitless journey to Bath. The house he loved, but never again saw, was taken down forty years later and rebuilt by Vicar James Devey. The garden, with Vicar Whitehead's close of ground and other adjacent lands, was opened out and planted somewhat before 1850 by vicar Robert Towerson. The aspect of everything has changed, but in a convenient chamber on the first floor of the present vicarage, the library of vicar Whitehead stands very much as he used it and loved it, and as he bequeathed it to his successors for ever. The books there are arranged as he arranged and ticketed them, little slips of paper, sometimes bearing interesting fragments of writing, still mark his places. His marginal comments still give life to pages from which all other interest has faded, and he would have had but a dull imagination who could sit in the chamber amidst these books without ever being carried back a hundred and eighty years into the past, to the time when the newest of them left the printer's hands. Of those into whose possession the books have come, some have doubtless loved them more, and some less, some perhaps have left them severely alone, but neither those who loved them, nor those who loved them not, have lost them, and they passed, some century and a half after William Whitehead's death, into the hands of Mr. Batchel, 
who loved him as a father does his children. He lived alone and had few domestic cares to distract his mind. He was able, therefore, to enjoy to the full what Vicar Whitehead had enjoyed so long before him. During many a long summer evening would he sit poring over long-forgotten books, and since the chamber, otherwise called the library, faced the south, he could also spend sunny winter mornings there without discomfort. Writing at a small table, or reading, as he stood at a tall desk, he would browse amongst the books like an ox in a pleasant pasture. There were other times also at which Mr. Batchel would use the books. Not being a sound sleeper, for book-loving men seldom are, he elected to use as his bedroom one of the two chambers which opened at either side into the library. The arrangement enabled him to beguile many a sleepless hour amongst the books, and in view of these nocturnal visits he kept a candle standing in a sconce above the desk, and matches always ready to his hand. There was one disadvantage in this close proximity of his bed to the library. Owing apparently to some defect in the fittings of the room, which, having no mechanical tastes, Mr. Batchel had never investigated, there could be heard, in the stillness of the night, exactly such sounds as might arise from a person moving about amongst the books. Visitors using the other adjacent room would often remark at breakfast that they had heard their host in the library at one or two in the morning, when in fact he had not left his bed. Invariably Mr. Batchel allowed them to suppose that he had been where they thought him. He disliked idle controversy, and was unwilling to afford an opening for supernatural talk. Knowing well enough the sounds by which his guests had been deceived, he wanted no other explanation of them than his own, though it was of too vague a character to count as an explanation. He conjectured that the window-sashes or the doors or, or something were defective, and was too phlegmatic and too unpractical to make any investigation. The matter gave him no concern. Persons whose sleep is uncertain are apt to have their worst nights when they would like their best. The consciousness of a special need for rest seems to bring enough mental disturbance to forbid it. So, on Christmas Eve, in the year 1907, Mr. Batchel, who would have liked to sleep well in view of the labours of Christmas Day, lay hopelessly wide awake. He exhausted all the known devices for counting sheep, and at the end found himself wider awake than ever. A brilliant moon shone into his room, for he hated window blinds. There was a light wind blowing, and the sounds in the library were more than usually suggestive of a person moving about. He almost determined to have the sashes seen to, although he could seldom be induced to have anything seen to. He disliked changes, even for the better, and would submit to great inconvenience rather than to have things altered with which he had become familiar. As he revolved these matters in his mind, he heard the clock strike the hour of midnight, and having now lost all hope of falling asleep, he rose from his bed, got into a large dressing-gown which hung in readiness for such occasions, and passed into the library with the intention of reading himself sleepy if he could. But the moon by this time had passed out of the south, and the library seemed all the darker by contrast with the moonlit chamber he had left. He could see nothing but two blue-grey rectangles formed by the windows against the sky, the furniture of the room being altogether invisible. 
Groping along to where the table stood, Mr. Batchel felt over its surface for the matches which usually lay there. He found, however, that the table was cleared of everything. He raised his right hand, therefore, in order to feel his way to a shelf where the matches were sometimes mislaid, and at that moment, whilst his hand was in mid-air, the matchbox was gently put into it. Such an incident could hardly fail to disturb even a phlegmatic person, and Mr. Batchel cried, "'Who's this?' somewhat nervously. There was no answer. He struck a match, looked hastily round the room, and found it empty as usual. There was everything, that is to say, that he was accustomed to see, but no other person than himself. It is not quite accurate, however, to say that everything was in its usual state. Upon the tall desk lay a quarto volume that he had certainly not placed there. It was his quite invariable practice to replace his books upon the shelves after using them, and what we may call his library habits were precise and methodical. A book out of place like this was not only an offence against good order, but a sign that his privacy had been intruded upon. With some surprise, therefore, he lit the candle standing ready in the sconce and proceeded to examine the book, not sorry, in the disturbed condition in which he was, to have an occupation found for him. The book proved to be one with which he was unfamiliar, and this made it certain that some other hand than his had removed it from its place. Its title was The Complete Gardener of Monsieur de la Quintine, made English by John Evelyn, Esquire. It was not a work in which Mr. Batchel felt any great interest. It consisted of diverse reflections on various parts of husbandry, doubtless entertaining enough, but too deliberate and discursive for practical purposes. He had certainly never used a book, and growing restless now in mind, said to himself that some boy having the freedom of the house had taken it down from its place in the hope of finding pictures. But even whilst he made this explanation, he found its weakness. To begin with, the desk was too high for a boy. The improbability that any boy would place a book there was equalled by the improbability that he would leave it there. To discover its uninviting character would be the work of only a moment, and no boy would have brought it so far from its shelf. Mr. Batchel had, however, come to read, and habit was too strong with him to be wholly set aside. Leaving the complete gardener on the desk, he turned round to the shelves to find some more congenial reading. Hardly had he done this when he was startled by a sharp rap upon the desk behind him, followed by a rustling of paper. He turned it quickly about and saw the quarto lying open. In obedience to the instinct of the moment, he at once sought a natural cause for what he saw. Only a wind, and that of the strongest, could have opened the book and laid back its heavy cover, and though he accepted for a brief moment that explanation, he was too candid to retain it longer. The wind out of doors was very light, uh, the window sash was closed and latched, and to decide the matter, finally, the book had its back and not its edges turned towards the only quarter from which a wind could strike. Mr. Batchel approached the desk again and stood over the book, with increasing perturbation of mind, for he still thought of the matchbox, he looked upon the open page. Without much reason beyond that he felt constrained to do something, 
He read the words of the half-completed sentence at the turn of the page. At dead of night he left the house and passed into the solitude of the garden. But he read no more, nor did he give himself the trouble of discovering whose midnight wandering was being described, although the habit was singularly like one of his own. He was in no condition for reading, and turning his back upon the volume, he slowly paced the length of the chamber, wondering at that which had come to pass. He reached the opposite end of the chamber and was in the act of turning, when again he heard the rustling of paper, and by the time he had faced round, saw the leaves of the book again turning over. In a moment the volume lay at rest open in another place, and there was no further movement as he approached it. To make sure that he had not been deceived, he read again the words as they entered the page. The author was following a not uncommon practice of the time, and throwing common speech into forms suggested by holy writ. So dig, it said, that ye may obtain. This passage, which to Mr. Batchel seemed reprehensible in its levity, excited at once his interest and his disapproval. He was prepared to read more, but this time was not allowed. Before his eye could pass beyond the passage already cited, the leaves of the book slowly turned again, and presented but a termination of five words and a colophon. The words were, To the north an ilex. These three passages, in which he saw no meaning and no connection, began to entangle themselves together in Mr. Batchel's mind. He found himself repeating them in different orders, now beginning with one and now with another. Any further attempt at reading he felt to be impossible, and he was in no mind for any more experiences of the unaccountable. Sleep was, of course, further from him than ever, if that were conceivable. What he did, therefore, was to blow out the candle, to return to his moonlit bedroom and put on more clothing, and then to pass downstairs with the object of going out of doors. It was not unusual with Mr. Batchel to walk about his garden at night-time. This form of exercise had often, after a wakeful hour, sent him back to his bed, refreshed and ready for sleep. The convenient access to the garden at such times lay through his study, whose French windows opened onto a short flight of steps, and upon these he now paused for a moment to admire the snow-like appearance of the lawns bathed as they were in the moonlight. As he paused, he heard the city clock strike the half-hour after midnight, and he could not forbear repeating aloud. At dead of night he left the house and passed into the solitude of the garden. It was solitary enough. At intervals the screech of an owl and now and then the noise of a train seemed to emphasise the solitude by drawing attention to it and then leaving it in the possession of the night. Mr. Batchel found himself wondering and conjecturing what Vicar Whitehead, who had acquired the close of land to secure quiet and privacy for garden, would have thought of the railways to the west and north. He turned his face northwards, whence a whistle had just sounded, and saw a tree beautifully outlined against the sky. His breath caught at the sight, not because the tree was unfamiliar, Mr. Batchel knew all his trees, but what he had seen was, to the north, an ilex. Mr. Batchel knew not what to make of it all. He had walked into the garden hundreds of times, and as often seen the ilex, but the words out of the complete gardener seemed to be pursuing him in a way that made him almost afraid. 
His temperament, however, as has been said already, was phlegmatic. It was commonly said, and Mr. Batchel approved the verdict whilst he condemned its inexactness, that his nerves were made of fiddle-string. So he braced himself afresh, and set upon his walk round the silent garden, which he was accustomed to begin in a northerly direction, and was now too proud to change. He usually passed the ilex at the beginning of his perambulation, and so would pass it now. He did not pass it. A small discovery as he reached it annoyed and disturbed him. His gardener, as careful and punctilious as himself, never failed to house all his tools at the end of a day's work. Yet there, under the ilex, standing upright in moonlight brilliant enough to cast a shadow of it, was a spade. Mr. Batchel's second thought was one of relief. After his extraordinary experiences in the library, he hardly knew now whether they had been real or not. Something quite commonplace would act sedatively, and he determined to carry the spade to the tool-house. The soil was quite dry, and the surface even a little frozen, so Mr. Batchel left the path, walked up to the spade, and would have drawn it towards him, but it was as if he had made the attempt upon the trunk of the ilex itself. The spade would not be moved. Then, first with one hand and then with both, he tried to raise it, and still it stood firm. Mr. Batchel, of course, attributed this to the frost, slight as it was. Wondering at the spade's being there, and annoyed at its being frozen, he was about to leave it and continue his walk, when the remaining words of the complete gardener seemed rather to utter themselves than to await his will. So dig that ye may obtain. Mr. Batchel's power of independent action now deserted him. He took the spade, which no longer resisted, and began to dig. Five spadefuls and no more, he said aloud. This is all foolishness. Four spadefuls of earth he then raised and spread out before him in the moonlight. There was nothing unusual to be seen, nor did Mr. Batchel decide what he would look for, whether coins, jewels, documents in canisters, or weapons. In point of fact, he dug against what he deemed his better judgment and expected nothing. He spread before him the fifth and last spadeful of earth, not quite without result, but with no result that was at all sensational. The earth uh, contained a bone. Mr. Batchel's knowledge of anatomy was sufficient to show him that it was a human bone. He identified it, even by moonlight, as the radius, a bone of the forearm, as he removed the earth from it, with his thumb. Such a discovery might be thought worthy of more than the very ordinary interest Mr. Batchel showed. As a matter of fact, the presence of a human bone was easily to be accounted for. Recent excavations within the church had caused the upturning of numberless bones which had been collected and reverently buried. But an earth-stained bone is also easily overlooked, and this radius had obviously found its way into the garden with some of the earth brought out of the church. Mr. Batchel was glad rather than regretful at this termination to his adventure. He was once more provided with something to do. The re-internment of such bones as this had been his constant care and he decided at once to restore the bone to consecrated earth. The time seemed opportune. The eyes of the curious were closed in sleep. He himself was still alert and wakeful. 
The spade remained by his side and the bone in his hand, so he betook himself there and then to the churchyard. By the still generous light of the moon he found a place where the earth yielded to his spade, and within a few minutes the bone was laid decently to earth, some eighteen inches deep. The city clock struck one as he finished. The whole world seemed asleep, and Mr. Batchel slowly returned to the garden with his spade. As he hung it in its accustomed place, he felt stealing over him the welcome desire to sleep. He walked quietly on to the house and ascended to his room. It was now dark. The moon had passed on and left the room in shadow. He lit a candle, and before undressing passed into the library. He had an irresistible curiosity to see the passages in John Evelyn's book which had so strangely adapted themselves to the events of the past hour. In the library a last surprise awaited him. The desk upon which the book had lain was empty. The complete gardener stood in its place on the shelf, and then Mr. Batchel knew that he had handled a bone of William Whitehead and that in response to his own entreaty. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So that was um, Bone to His Bone by E.G. Swain. And I, I um, at this time of year, in December and such like, which I'm reading this slightly before December, back end of November 2023, I turned to my collection of books about um, traditional ghost stories or anthologies of Christmas ghost stories. This one is uh, from, this is Ghost for Christmas, edited by Richard Dolby, who was a very prolific um, editor of ghost stories. And a lot of them came out in the 1980s. I'm looking um, when this is published by Headline. So this is the anthology, it looks like. 1988, okay. It was 80s. He was, he was very active doing these things. Um, and then I went on, online and found um, the or original book itself, Swain's uh, book, The Stone Ground Ghost Tales, which was uh, compiled from the recollections of the Reverend Roland Batchel, vicar of the parish, obviously not a real one, published in Cambridge by W. Heffer and Sons Limited, 1912. And very interestingly, dedicated this book by um, Stoneground Ghost Tales by E.G. Swain is dedicated to Montague Rhodes James and everybody who's into ghost stories will say the master at this point. I said at one point um, I was talking about some author and I went peace be upon him and uh, somebody are you a Muslim then? I'm actually not. Uh, it was just uh, just a, the way I said it. So yeah anyway so when I say that I'm not. So Montague Rhodes James, Lit D on Lit D Dublin on LLD St Andrews FBA FCA etc. Provost of King's College Cambridge for twenty pleasant years, Mr Batchel's friend and the indulgent parent of such tastes as these page pages indicate. Okay, so we find a little bit more about him. Edward Edmund Gill Swain, E.G. Swain, born eighteen sixty one, died nineteen thirty eight, was chaplain at King's College Cambridge. See from 1892 to 1916, where one of his best friends was M.R. James, the great writer of ghost stories. Swain obviously fell under his influence and penned several Jamesian tales of his own, all collected in the Stoneground Ghost Tales, 
which we've read, um, Swain became minor canon and librarian at Peterborough Cathedral, Stoneground being base, uh, directly based on the village of Strandground, situated near Peterborough. So, you know, um, using some of his own biographical details, I don't know if he ever had this thing about the bone. I, I first read this actually in another anthology, I think the Oxford Book of English Ghost Stories, and um, I liked it. It's, it's short, um, but it's neat. And I've got to say something about the length. People sometimes, uh, it is nice to hear from people, but they sometimes are very specific about their requests for stories. So I was recently told by somebody that um, they preferred stories of about an hour, um, but would not invest time in four hours. Other people say, we like long stories, you know, g going on. And I'm like, that's grand. I will do both. Why not? So this one's 20 minutes. And you, the last one I pushed up, pushed up, was Frankenstein, which is eight and a half hours. So I think between the two of them, most people should be satisfied. Uh, and of course, you can always add shorter stories together to make your destined time. Because there's hundreds, I think I've done 200 on now. Um, and you can add them together to make the hour, if that's what, or an hour and 20 minutes, whatever your preference is, an hour and 45 minutes. Or you can kind of chop the longer ones down. You could like just listen to an hour of like Rebecca or um, Don't Look Now or um, Alice in Wonderland or ooh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde or these longer, slightly longer ones. Yeah, so feel free to do that. I don't mind. Um, I have allowed the dogs back in. Um, I banned them before. So these are slightly two different dogs. Um, they're not two different dogs. I know some, some people like the dogs, so I will say something about them. So Ruby, the little one, is in, who's a very characterful and feisty. She's in season, so she's had to go and stay with her mother, Shade, and her sister, Juno. Now, um, she's got another sister called Callie. And Callie um, and Ruby are the smallest. So they were kind of fighting about who was going to be bottom of the pile. Um, and you think Ruby's smallest, so she would be. But Ruby's, she's got some tenacity. So she's got some grit, that girl. So Callie, who is a milder but bigger dog, slightly bigger, um, was, was going to lose. So I said, well, we'll have Callie. We don't want them together. And so we have Callie now. And Callie is Jasper's twin. So J Jasper is black with a white bib and socks, and Callie doesn't have the socks, but otherwise a colouring brindle coming through with the black, and uh, she's like a smaller version of Jasper, and they're, they're quite similar in temperament as well, whereas Ruby's very fiery. They, they're a bit more laid back, except today. Because you maybe know that Jasper had, um, the reason we ended up with him was he had cancer on his toe, and he had, when he was a little, little puppy, uh, we had his toe amputated, and he's made a really good recovery. But if he's too energetic running around, he goes lame. He goes, you know, it, it just having one less toe, most of the time he's fine. But if he overdoes it and he gets too excited, uh, then he, um, he will limp. Not only in that one. So at the moment he's limping in his other foot. So I've been taking him out for walks and he's, had, he's just pulled up. He runs around, runs around because, you know, they're just little really still. They're not even a year old. And him and his sister Callie. Um, I think Ruby's his favorite sister, but he likes Callie. Callie's a sweet little dog. And um, um, so they've been playing too much and he's got a sore foot. So that meant I didn't take him for a walk to rest his foot because he wouldn't rest. He's not got the sense to do so. But um, that means they're br brimming over with uh, energy. 
So I'm going to try and take him for a short walk later. It's not quite evening yet. Um, and I'm going out to meet Danny. Um, so Danny's going to see Big Country play, but uh, there are no tickets left. And Sheila's away, so I'm on my own with the dogs. So I thought I'd go and see uh, Danny um, at, at five. I'm glad you all know about my my domestic arrangements and my social arrangements. So let's get back to Egypt. Now, because I was only saying that because I banned them when I was reading the story because they were carrying on, and, uh, I'll let, and then I've let them back in. So if you hear... That when they fight, but they don't fight, they play, but they make these terrible murderous sounds that sound like they're killing each other. Rawr, 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 all that, but they're not really. Uh, and um, anyway, so back to E.G. Swain. We already know this. He was chaplain at King's College, Cambridge. He was a colleague and contemporary of the scholar M.R. James. We know this, we know this. And a regular member of the select group to whom James delivered his famous annual Christmas Eve readings of ghost stories composed specially for the occasion. Um, Swain collaborated with James on topical skits for amateur performance in Cambridge. He's known best for his collection of ghost stories in 1912, the Stoneground Ghost Tales, which we said. So he was born in Stockport in Cheshire, educated at Manchester Grammar School and Emmanuel College, Cambridge, where he studied natural sciences. I'm going to have to quieten these dogs in a minute. <clears throat> Stop it. He was ordained deacon in 1885 and priest in 1886 at Rochester in Kent. After six years as curate at Camberwell, he was appointed chaplain of King's College, where M.R. James was already the dean and a renowned scholar. Swain, like James, lived in rooms in the college during his time there. Excuse me. I'm going to have to ban them again, I think. Um, so then, he, after being in Cambridge until 1905, he was given the benefits of Stanground near Peterborough. Which I think is East Anglia, no, I think it's East Midlands rather than East Anglia, although somebody from Peterborough may tell me that. I remember once, the only time I've ever been, I was waiting for trains and it was on, and a couple of hours and I had to wander around. There's a lovely old medieval bit in it. Um, so he, um, so Swain used this uh, stand ground as the basis of uh, uh, these stories. Sorry if I sound distracted. Um, there's nine stories in the book, the stone ground, excuse me. I was hoping to get this done before I had to take him out for a walk, you know how it is. And then I could wrap this up and then gone on to the next task. Um, so then after he was at Stanground, he went to Greenford in Middlesex and ended his church career at Peterborough Cathedral, where he was honorary ca canon librarian and precentor. Pre he died at Peterborough in 29, on 29th January 1938. A door in Peterborough Cathedral and awards for cathedral choristers are named in his honour. This book uh, was dedicated to James. Um, so it, it isn't a J. It's a, good, it's a reasonable story. I like the story. I remember reading it. As I said, it's anthologized in lots of places and thinking, oh, that's a good one. It is Jamesian in that. It is a single man, an older single man who is, not, um, who is vaguely churchy, uh, academic. They're not aristocracy. They're, if you think E.F. Benson's people, uh, even though his father was a bishop, if you think that E.F. Benson's, um, uh, they live lives of leisure in country houses, whereas James's reflect his um, milieu. And, and, the, and so Swain's exactly the same, isn't it? It's, this is churchy people who like old books, and they find things in old books. There's an, I didn't find this particularly malevolent. I thought it was more like one of those traditional ghost stories where the ghost demands um, things that be put right. You know, and it appears that what's happened, I think the hint is that um, although he died down in, in Bath, 
he was buried in the churchyard and then when they were redoing it and there was some hint to the fact that uh, later vicars had messed around with the and that's actually set out quite early and i think that is our that's our foreshadowing we don't realize that till the end that 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 fact is significant when you foreshadow you can either make it very very obvious that gun sits on the mantelpiece to go with chekhov or you can uh, you can just you know brush over it and say looking around the room there was a vase of flowers on the table the book on the cupboard the gun on the mantelpiece a dog on the hearth uh, a bird flew past and then you just ooh, it's just one in a list whereas if you kind of pause and it's like aha so i think he was more subtle and he said you know the garden was the room the the, the house was knocked down by dewey was it vicar dewey Devi. and the other one was um i can't remember the other guy's name the other vicar and he did the garden so that is our foreshadowing that the fact that the bones have been and we know that the bones of the dead being disturbed this is like an old old this isn't even particularly christian it's just like an old human belief isn't it when the remains of the dead are disturbed the spirits of the dead are unsettled and so whitehead who isn't really talked about we just get a kind of sentence or two of him at the beginning he's this reverend and he liked books so he's a fairly inoffensive dude and um another old booky man because the previous vicars maybe didn't like the books but our man Batchel loves the books so he has a rapport with uh, whitehead to start off with maybe that's why he is the one who's picked to to write this wrong and um it, through them and the, and the messages are through the books themselves and so and it's simple isn't it it's a simple simple story um it's just yeah what's to be said and it's jamesian in that the setting as i said the type of person the books the old houses the historical this that and the other going back a couple of centuries you know um but it doesn't have the malevolence of some of James, I mean, most of the um, most of the supernatural entities in James's stories are vaguely evil. Where, well, not even vaguely evil; they're pretty evil. You know that they have bad intent. But uh, in this case, we can't say that, can we? This is a quite benevolent ghost. Okay. Um, so that's probably all I want to say about that story. I liked it. It's shortish, but remember, if you want a longer story, there's Frankenstein. Eight and a half hours. Blow your brains out on it. I don't mean, well, I don't know what I mean by that. So, um, some things have happened. Um, I, yeah, my mum uh, is, is getting better. I hope she was hallucinating to give them too many drugs. And she's 85, never really been used to taking drugs. And so she thought she was being interrogated by Russians about nursing. Um, she told me, she saw, I was sitting there, she goes, what's that cat? And there was no cat there. Um, and what was the other one? 6.15 in the morning, she phoned me up and said, Tony, she said, it's your mother. I said, oh, right, okay. She, I thought something terrible happened. She said, I, I can't open these bottles. Will you come over here, put your dressing gown on, and come over and open the bottles? Um, so, oh, probably not. So I phoned up the home, the care home where she's having respite in. She may decide to live there. Um, and they said, oh, yeah, she'd been hallucinating all night. So um, they will um, open the bottles for her. So I've just had a phone call from her today. I saw her. Um, three times yesterday, but I'm now back home, so doing this because I, you know, life goes on. But she's a worry. She's a worry. Uh, she's been a good mother to me, you know, and uh, I, I, um, I do love her, and um, so you know, inevitably, if if 
if something happens, I'm going to put her before recording podcast episodes. I hope you don't mind. I'll get back to it eventually. Uh, but as yet, uh, she seems slightly better today. Um, Sheila's away with her friend Sparkly Emma, um, sitting in a hot tub drinking cocktails, as far as I can tell. A guy, not related to that at all, a guy called Todd Thyberg from Minneapolis um, has reached out to me. Uh, he's one of my patrons, and he has produced a chapbook. So he's done this beautifully handmade book of H.P. Lovecraft's The Beast in the Cave, and it's illustrated by him. The cover, it's handmade, it's embossed, it's a limited edition, there's a hundred editions, and he sent me 26, number 26, Angel, Angel Bomb. He printed it and sewn it himself, illustrations by, I mean, I think the only other thing, okay, Lovecraft wrote the story, typesetting by Judy Gillard. So it's one of these um, printed on a 1950s Heidelberg cylinder. So it's proper William Morris stuff. You know, William Morris arts and crafts movement believed that, you know, we should escape from the mechanization of everything and we should um, hand make everything. So make, make the paint, make the ink, print it by hand, um, make the paper sew it yourself, stitch it yourself. So it's like gone back to that, and it really is a beautiful thing. I'm guessing you can buy them. He has, he's just sent it to me as a gift, you know, a signed gift. And um, I think you probably can buy it from Angel Bomb. If you Google Angel Bomb Minneapolis, and it's Todd uh, Thyberg, so T-H-Y-B-E-R-G, it's an absolutely beautiful thing. Um, such And there's like a, even the bookmark, there's a as a bookmark with with a thread and a printed flashlight, and and on the back of the flashlight's a quote from Lovecraft, and you can use this flashlight. Isn't that a cool idea to show illuminate how far you've uh, you've got on? So I, oh, Callie's come up now. Which one's this? Because I told you the twins. No, this is Jasper. So all the dogs. Go back to the the dogs. They both are here now. So Ruby's twin is Stan. Um. And Jasper's twin is Callie. And there were the two spot heads. And Juno's twin is Bruno. Bruno's gone to live in a big house in Yorkshire. The two spot heads, I don't know where their names are. They were just little spot head and big spot head. They like white spots on their head. And uh, I remember when they were tiny, tiny puppies that could fit on your hand. The spots would woof at me. Um, and, but they, but they, yeah, so these two are twins. And um, they're temperamentally quite similar. I mean, I'm already repeating myself, so I won't say that again. Okay, what else is going on? Lots of things are going on in the world, but um, this isn't the time or place to talk about those. Um, and it's deliberately not the time or place to talk about those, because do you know what? Um, these days, with the, the uh, saturation of social media and 24-hour news channels, and much of it isn't news, it's speculation, opinion, prejudice, you know, on, on people's parts, uh, or maybe on everybody's parts, uh, and um, you know it's it's not healthy. I I got rid of my personal Twitter account because it was just poison. Um, I rarely go on Facebook, so if you contact me via Facebook or um, Instagram, I, I I like Instagram more because there's pictures, and I like those moody reels. I was telling you about that, either Japan or um, Iceland or New York or Berlin. And they just with music. I just love those and nice pictures, things like that. I don't want. I don't want 
people's invective or um, stuff. And so that's what we are not doing here. Uh, it is a it is a peaceful zone, uh, apart from the dogs carrying on. They're lying down now, wouldn't you know? Oh, the best pals now. Oh, Licky. Oh, we love each other now. But a minute ago, at each other's throats. So, but not really. Um, okay. What else? Yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of petering. Out. Oh yeah, my Etsy store. Remember, there's still time to get a. Uh, if you're in the UK, I will post you from my Etsy store. If you're in the US or Australia or Ireland, you can get the merch packs, which include a three postcards, um, a sticker, and a badge. Oh, I think a pin, a lapel pin, a little tin badge, as we would call it. And uh, you get that, and it's, I think it's four ninety nine. I don't know. Yeah, anyway, those are from Etsy. If you want to buy my books otherwise, go to your local bookstore and order them if they haven't got them in. They probably haven't got them in. Uh, yeah, so Etsy store, Christmas. Um, other news, yeah, I'm now over on Spotify with the podcast as podcast. Rumble reached out to me and said, would you like to come on Rumble? So apparently there's no real work and there's money to be made doing it, you know, for no extra work. So who wouldn't turn that down? Uh, who wouldn't turn that down? I think I've said that wrong. Um, so it's all go. And I've given up my, I've given my notice in for my, one of my nursing jobs. I maybe said this last week. Um, fin- I think I did say. So finishing on the 29th of December, which will free up more time. I'm trying to write a story called The Holly King at the moment. I was walking the dogs and it was very much in my mind. Um, I'm not sure how it goes. I've, there's little bits of it I've got, but I need to, I need to sit down and write it. Uh, and that is it. I'm just too busy at the moment. I hope you're all well. Um, we're all well, really, by and by. by and, yeah, we are. I'm well. The dogs are well, apart from Jasper's so poor. Um, and... Um, yeah, no, that's it. So, okay. Do you see how I just petered out then? I was like, yeah, I can't think of anything more to say. Hope you're all well. Hope you enjoyed the story. More to come. More Christmas stories throughout December. All right. Take care, everybody. I remembered something. The music, of course, is all, as always, is by the Hartwood Institute. Jonathan Sharp and the Hartwood Institute. It's already started. I'm doing a, a solstice storytelling reading with Jonathan and some other people in Carlisle. So if you're not in Carlisle, it's going to be difficult to get there. Carlisle, not Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Carlisle, Cumberland. Uh, and um, that's what I'm writing The Holy King for. Yeah, so this is Hartwood Institute. Some come back.